with Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're off, and we're off, and we're off. Here we are. Oh, it's another fan, uh, fun size family. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck it. Um, uh, just eating my subway. Um, ah. Uh, so what day is today? Is um, oh, apparently um, today is Friday, the twenty fifth of September. Well, what happened to the one that we did on Monday? I guess we must be putting that out the following week. That's absolute bullshit. We've done it. We've Why? done it. I don't know. I don't know. This is this is crazy, Natalie. Come on. <laughs> um, all right, today is future. today is three days from now, and it's great. Uh, I'm not 40 yet, Nathaniel. Still in your 30s, mate. What was it like turning 40? Oh, my name's Nick Helm. This is Nathaniel Metcalf. You're listening to Fan Size Family Fun Club. <laughs> and uh, uh, first rule of fan club, tell your friends. Second rule of fan club, please, for the love of, for the love of God, Mike. tell, tell your friends. It's not a religious show. Don't worry about that. You and, will go um, to hell if you do. Um, yeah. You will be judged. What was it like when you turned 40? I had a nice birthday. Uh, but do you know what? It does, I did feel different. I felt like, um, you know, I feel like it's all downhill now, Nick, and I feel like this is a, uh, I've uh, gone over the peak and now it's um, hurtling towards oblivion. What did you do for your 40th birthday? You were there. I went to that pub and I hired... Um, uh, I hired the upstairs of a pub, the the, the Green Man, <laughs> um, in Riding House Street. Nick, was it in Riding House Street? Oh, yes! Was that your 40th? That was my 40th. I get mixed up between your 40th and your leaving do when you left Gosh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and was a, bit a couple of things. They, they, had to, they had to put down a £100 deposit, I remember, to book the room, which was fine. That was fine. Because a deposit means you get it back, doesn't it? That's what a deposit is. But when I got there, I found out that the deposit just goes to... Essentially, what you've bought is a tab. So if you were there early, it just meant everyone who's there early was just having free drinks that I paid for on my own birthday. And at the end of the night, I'd lost £100. But it was a good night. Um, I, don't, I don't think it should have worked like that. No. I had no. to put a deposit down... I had to put a deposit down for um, a girlfriend's birthday. And the deposit was huge. And then also, the amount of money that she had to, her and her friends had to spend at the bar in order to get your deposit back was huge. We didn't make it. I ended up, I mean, that's love. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pricey. It's pricey. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, it's not going to be... How do you feel about it, though? Do you, have, do you have any feelings about turning 40, Nick? I don't know if I'm ever going to get married, and I don't know if I'm... Um, you know, I think turning 40 was kind of, like, going to be, like, my wedding day. I've been planning it my whole life, and... Nothing can COVID, change that. COVID has <laughs> sort of, like, ruined it. I mean, at least if you're getting married, you can cancel your wedding and move it a year. Uh, I can't. That time, st- time stands still for no man. I am going to be 40. So so I was going to have, like, a big party where I was going to cook for everyone and it was going to be really nice, but I can't do that in my flat because my flat's too small. So I was probably going to, like, rent a 
a, a room with a kitchen, and then I was going to see if uh, my band would play, and uh, they'd be like, and one of my best mates is a DJ, and I was going to get into DJ stuff, and it was going to be like really like, and these are all of the people that I love and care about in the same room, and my my mum and dad were going to be there, and it's going to be a nice civilized thing where me and my other best mate. Uh, Rebecca were going to do like a load of cooking and cater for everyone and everyone was going to sit around big tables and you know I wanted I wanted to do something for people that have been there for me over the years and just really sort of like go it's not really about me it's about me celebrating all the people that I've met over 40 years who haven't fucked me over like an absolute fucking piece of shit cunt right but that's uh, cancelled now so so what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to sort of, like, meet up with, uh, like, collections of people. Like, these are my uni friends, and these are my school friends, and these are my comedy friends. Uh, so that would be you. And, uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> me and you will go to the cinema, and then uh, it's just going to be small little pockets of people. And... Um, uh, yeah, and I'm trying to like drag it out for as long as I possibly can. That's quite if I nice, could, though. That's quite. If nice. I if I could do four things over uh, four things a day over ten days, and I take a photo of everything, yeah. I, I can do forty birthdays yeah. <laughs> in forty days. So I don't know if I can do that, but um, yeah. I've got stuff. I've got stuff planned. So uh, yeah, it's, I'd it's like yeah. When I turn forty, I um, I add that. And I remember, on, it doesn't seem so decadent now. It feels like I should have done something bigger. Uh, on the Saturday before my birthday, birthday was on a Monday, and on the Saturday, one of my birthday things was going to see Phantom of the Paradise at the BFI. And that was one of my big, like, birthday things. And I was like, yeah! Loved it, though. Yeah, but Had a great time. I think that's, where, where was it, BFI? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, I haven't, been to the cinema. I haven't been to the cinema in such a long time. You know, uh, I went to see Bill and Ted... Which we talked about last week, next week. We talked about last Monday, next week. Um, so we went to see Bill and Ted. We'll talk uh, about Bill and Ted probably next week. Probably talk about that next week. Um, yeah, I thought that that was great, and I loved going to the cinema. Um, I went to a local one to me, and they've just redone it, and uh, it's gorgeous what they've done. Um, really comfortable, lovely cinema. Went again to see uh, a film that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, Cinema still great. Uh, didn't enjoy the film, and then, um, but I looked up the BFI for on my actual birthday, and it's kind of like, uh, I mean, at least you went to see the Phantom of the Paradise, which is kind of on brand. But my choice is really, I can either go and see uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's in in Screen One in the middle of the day. Middle of the afternoon. I'd like to do something at, like, 11 or 12 in the afternoon. We are good, that's done, and then you can go out for lunch. And I think they've moved the time for breakfast at Tiffany, so it's later. So I, I like that, and I know it's iconog- I, I know it's iconic. And it's got loads of iconography and Audrey Hepburn and George Pepper. But then you've also got to sit through Mickey Rooney, uh, being their Chinese landlord, and you kind of like, I'm not sure if I want to be bombarded with racism on my 40th birthday. Even though you can contextualise it, everyone was doing it back then. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think, and it's also got like Moon River. I don't know. I don't know if. Um, I don't know if I would 
burst into tears or to be honest i'd actually quite like to go into a cinema and get ruined by a film and i don't think breakfast at tiffany's is that film if it was cary grant it would be no question but it's and then later on in the evening it's taxi driver and you think i don't love it it's not my fit do you know what i mean they're both very close calls and you go you've almost nailed this well that was it i think it was Phantom of the Paradise was close enough to my birthday and on, like, a Saturday night that I was able to go, yeah, Saturday night, Phantom of the Paradise. That's my, uh, that's my birthday. Yeah. It's all I think bit, that's it, great, though. And it felt like it was enough about it that makes you go, yeah, it's meant to be like that. That's what, that's, so uh, it's not on my actual birthday, so I can still do something in, in the evening, but on the Saturday yeah. night, Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, but but the other thing, right, is that I can't quite, I can't understand why. I think the BFI website, famously, is awful. It's very difficult oh. to find. I, I, I'm getting better at it, but only because I've struggled for so many times to look it up. Yeah. But I'm going on the Odeon website, and I can't fucking... Um, they, I, I don't know whether it's because of lockdown and COVID and all that, but literally it will tell you what is on today... And you go, no, I want to know what's on next Thursday. Just so you type in, you type in the date and the cinema, and it just comes up with showing today. And you're just like, no, I want to know what's on next. I don't, Thursday. Know, I, want to... I, I don't know that any cinema has nailed their website to make it. Why are I... cinema times? Why are cinema times? I can understand that you don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to release week by week. I mean, right, you work in a cinema. Mm -hmm. uh, how does it work? How, how, how far in advance do you know? The Monday, for the Monday, on a Monday, they book everything from the following Friday to Thursday. Because, literally, uh, the new Mission Impossible film might come out and they'll go, well, we'd want that for seven weeks. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't make any money over the first weekend. And they're like, well, we'll dump this and put something else on in its place, right? Yeah. yeah. Which Sometimes is why it was really... Which make them, they have to, they've agreed to put it on for four weeks or whatever. <laughs> Disney do that, don't they? Disney say um, you've got to put Star Wars on in four screens of your multiplex for seven weeks, uh, and if you don't, you're not going to get any more Disney films. Mm. And so cinemas like literally have to do that. And if the and if the film doesn't do as well, there's nothing that the cinema can really do about it. But I can understand going week by week. I can't understand how you want to plan your life one week in advance, and you want to go what's on at the cinema. And you can't find it out anywhere. And you're trying like all. It's like you're. Um, it's like you're you're playing. Uh, I was going to say it's like you're playing Monkey Island, and you've got to come up with a password, and you're just trying all these random. But you know, in real life, it could be a real. It doesn't have to be Monkey Island, but it's like you're basically trying to come up with a secret password at the door and find out if you if I get it right, then. You know, a world of information is at my fingertips, but I literally don't understand why cinema fucking websites are so fucking difficult to use. Prince Charles nail it. They know, because they've got, like, a schedule, they know what they're showing, when they're showing it, and they can give you kind of, like... Oh, it's true, actually. Map, they they, they map. Right up until, like, the end of the year, probably. They've probably got a, a few showings booked in. Yeah, and I guess that they'll have, like, updates and stuff, but they know when, you know, uh, Labyrinth Night is. Hmm. Um... And they know, they know when they're going to ruin the Die Hard trilogy. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like they've 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 planned them all out. Um, 
So maybe that's the best. That's the best cinema for. for I, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, the BFI one. It's like you've pretty much got to put aside half an hour if you want to book tickets. It's like right, okay. So it's the yeah, come in, and I'm looking for this thing on this date, and then just going through like it's usually like the second half of it is all like going through multiple screens of after you've even picked your seats and things. Like, what more can there be to do? Like, it's this sort of ongoing yeah. um, transaction. Oh, and you want to do it on your phone? Forget about it. Oh, yeah, you can't, you, need it. you can't even get, like, an image of the entire uh, seating plan uh, <laughs> on your screen. You've got to, like, move it around, and you end up pressing the buttons of what seat... It's like, it's... Oh, should be easier. If anyone that's ever uh, worked in a cinema or enjoys cinema listens to this podcast, I imagine we felt that people that aren't into that stuff out by now. But... <laughs> If anyone, someone just design a really good cinema website where it's easy to use and sell it to all of them, right? It should literally be film, calendar, time, seat, we're out, <laughs> pay, that's it. Do you know what I mean? It should, it should be that. What day do you want to go? No, what film do you want to see? That film. What day do you want to go? That day. Or what day do you want to go? This day, what is on? I want to see that film. What time is it? Here. I mean, it is complicated, actually, now that I've started. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> oh, well, never mind. Uh, so, Breakfast at Tiffany's, followed by Taxi Driver. Classic double bill, that is. That is an absolute classic double bill. I always um, feel like I'd want to see them the other way around. Well, just well, to calm down afterwards. Yeah. Oh, that's a bit much. I don't know. Yeah, I could, yeah. Oh, a solid double bill in a way. Like, but I know what you mean. They're not perfect, are they? They're not. No. Yeah. No. Um, oh, what in terms of? Yeah, because I love uh, more Martin Scorsese, but I don't love Taxi Driver. It's not one of my favourites, but it's probably one that I haven't watched loads. But um, oh, what I like most about Taxi Driver is that you think he's a bad guy, but he turns out to be bloody great. You know, <laughs> he's like a real. So that'd be a real bloody hero at the end of it. You think, yeah, good for you, Travis. You've really nailed it. Um, uh, yeah, and I just think that our oh, breakfast at Tiffany's, I mean, that Mickey Rooney stuff is just ruins it. Like, just the thought of it is just a, like... Mickey oh, Rooney, more like. Going to have to sit through that. And uh, So I don't know. So that's what I'm trying to do. I was, like, looking at the BFI, and you go, that's great. But... Let's look up any other cinema to see what what else you could do. And what anyone kind of, else oh, is doing. What anyone else is doing, and it's impossible. So it might be a case of just booking. I think I'm going to be with my mum. So I think maybe my mum would enjoy that. But Yeah. Oh, no, not Breakfast at Tiffany's, mate. <laughs> um, do they use the song uh, for the theme tune? What? Moon River? Breakfast oh, at the, Tiffany's. The Deep Blue Something song. Uh, yeah. They should do. They should do. They should do a George Lucas and... Uh, yeah, give him that. Cut out Moon River. Bin it. Cut. Pick on Deep Blue Something. Uh, yeah. Is that what they're called? Deep Blue Something? I'm pretty sure that's what they're called. Now that I'm saying it out loud, they don't sound... Natalie, who is it? Breakfast at Tiffany's? Is it Deep Blue Something? I keep thinking the Deep Blue Sea now with... Um, it's not the, it's not the Rembrandts, though. No. Deep Blue something. Uh, Deep Blue something. Rembrandt's, but I'll be there for you. 
uh, <laughs> from the sitcom Friendies. <laughs> it's a long time ago. It's difficult to remember. Um, friendies now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really like birthdays, so I'm a bit gutted. But yeah. um, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to have like a fucking mega 41st birthday party. And, um, and I've got my life sorted out by then, so it'll be perfect. Absolutely perfect. And what have you done? Um, um, since last week. Yeah, since last week, which would be Monday. But, hey, so yeah. what's happening is, what's happening is basically, uh, we've had some guests that have been, um, uh, schedule-wise, we've had to move stuff around. And what we've realised is that we've kind of like, we've banked a week. Uh, so we're having next week, in real life, we're having a week off. But the radio show will still go ahead because we're releasing whatever... I thought it was what we were recording today, but it's obviously whatever we record we recorded on Monday. Which means that we haven't had a week off in between shows. We've... Um, okay. We are now... Yeah, we're doing two shows. So, so that's difficult. So, anyway, it's not that difficult, but what have you done in the day that I haven't seen you? Well, I've seen a couple of films... Seen a couple of films. I've seen uh, the Bonfire of the Vanities, and I have seen uh, Watchmen. Watchmen. Okay. Only the second time. So it's part of your uh, De Palma Fest that, yeah. uh, that people will find out about next week from yeah. last. Well, I watched some earlier ones just a bit before that for fun. Skipped ahead. Um, watched. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. Um, and speak. I mean, did we talk on air about Sergeant Pepper? I think we did, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure we did. And what was the other one? Roadie. We've not. We didn't talk about Roadie, did we? we uh, so we actually we actually saw each other on Monday. Yeah. And we talked about Roadie, but I went to my storage unit and um, yeah, and I opened a box of DVDs, and right on the top was Sergeant Pepper and Roadie. So I've got them for you. Oh um, wow. Uh, I haven't missed not having them in my house, so you can borrow them for as long as you like, mate. <laughs> uh, but I do have a poster behind me of the movie Roadie, which was produced by Shep Gordon, who was Alice Cooper's uh, agent. And it stars Meatloaf, and it's like a knockabout comedy where Meatloaf meets Debbie Harry, I think, and uh, with the help of Art Carney, they have to go on a road trip across America where um, I think Meatloaf wants to try out to be a roadie. And they actually film during the setup of one of Alice Cooper's actual gigs at this huge venue. So they must have been like free in the day. And they said, oh, we'll just double up. And if you've got like an hour to spare, you can fit. And then, so the idea is that they go across country to see Alice Cooper. And it was all orchestrated by Alice Cooper's agent. So it's kind of like people have just, it's just basically pulled in a load of favours. And it is uh, rubbish. <laughs> so you can, you can borrow that, and I've got Sergeant Pepper's um, Lonely Hearts Club Band starring the Bee Gees. I think what's great, though, have you ever seen Slade in Flame? Yeah. That's really good. I really like that yeah. film. Feels really gritty British film version of that kind of, you know, it's not at all a hard day's night. It's proper, like, grim, grim life on the road. Yeah, in, I can't really remember it. I can't really remember it that well, but I do remember really, really enjoying um, Slade, in, Slade in Flame. And, yeah. Have you ever seen Head, the monkey's head? 
Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that. Which was written by... Jack Nicholson. Yeah. So... So there was a Beatles movie, and then I guess there was a Monkeys movie, and then I guess there was another Beatles movie, or maybe there was two Beatles movies. But the Monkeys, who... It's weird, because... Well, no, I guess the Monkeys came from Hard Day's Night. It's like it's like the TV version of it, isn't it? <laughs> so Hard Day's Night and um, I mean it's the second week we've been talking about it, but Hard Day's Night and Monkeys, Hard Day's Night and Help. Um, uh, the Beatles basically being the Monkeys, oh. and then the Monkeys were formed, and they were like, let's do like um, uh, a manufactured band that's like the Beatles in Hard Day's Night, and then. Um, that's when the TV series came out, and the TV series was a way of them sort of, like, uh, shifting records and stuff, because they'd go on and they'd sing all their songs on the TV series. But they acted like the Beatles in Help and Hard Place Night in their movies. But then when the Monkees went on to make a movie, everyone thought that they're like a kid's band. And when the Monkees went on to make a movie, they basically... Uh, Jack Nicholson had just... what? Had, what was the film when he... Um, Strapped himself in a room for a week and he just took LSD and now that's why he needs to wear sunglasses everywhere he goes. Oh, I don't know. What would that be? Uh, what is it? He did like this... Is it The Trip? Oh, is yeah, it The trip? trip? Probably, yeah. yeah. I've never seen that. So he did that. I've never seen that. And then he came straight... Jack Nicholson was kind of like... He was um, an actor for hire, but he was basically Roger Corman's uh, scriptwriter and he would go off and he'd write these scripts. And then he pops up in, like, these... Boris Karloff movies and stuff, and you're kind of like, oh, like he's in the Terror, and what was that other one? Uh, the, the, is he in the Raven? Yeah, he's in the Raven, I think. Yeah, yeah. The... And it's really weird just seeing Jack Nicholson wearing tights and uh, like a med- medieval garb, and you go, wow, that's really weird. And it's only like five years before he was doing. Wow, no, it's like a couple of years before he was doing um, Easy Rider. Rider in Chinatown, and. Um, yeah, so Jack Nicholson was writing all these things, and he wrote, like, The Monkeys, which is, like, this really... I think it's 18 certificate, and it's called Head, and it's this kind of, like, uh, really trippy LSD counterculture movie that must have actually come out after Easy Rider, surely. It was like The Monkeys were like, we don't want to be... So when, so when The Beatles made uh, their movies, they made Monkeys movies, and then when The Monkeys made uh, their movie... It was this really edgy, kind of, like, gritty um, counterculture movie that was written by Jack Nicholson. And, uh, yeah, it was, it, it's, it's sort of interesting. But, um, yeah, Slade in Flame is kind of uh, like a British that. Yes, yeah. But very much in the British style as well, in that kind of... Yeah. It's like, it's like in England, you're not allowed to, to have fun in, anymore. But by the 70s, you weren't allowed to make fun films. They just were like, no. It's like, oh, it's it's a bad slave in the film. Oh, that sounds fun. That'll be a fun film. What happens? And it's like, oh, they'll get, like, beaten up in, like, uh, a transport cafe or something. It's all like that, like... It's like gritty. It's gritty. It's working class. It's Christmas. Yeah. It's that. (laughs) There you go. Because they're, like... Uh, them and Wizard, I always get them mixed up, but it's kind of like, they're kind of like the kids' band. Do you know what I mean? Look yeah. at him, he's wearing tartan trousers. It's kind of like... He's, got, so a big, he's got a big hat on with um, with sort of glitter on it and things. He's got huge platform shoes. He's got funny facial hair. It's great. They've all got mad haircuts. 
They're a fun-looking band. They look so much fun. And that guy, he's got the he's got the bowl cut with the long hair down the sides. Yeah. It's amazing when um, Reeves and Mortimer did Slade, how mm. much they both look like those two guys. Yes. Uh, especially, uh, especially Bob Mortimer. I mean, he looks exactly like him. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, and you got them, and then uh, they've made like this really kind of like down and say, oh, I'll watch that again. It's there's quite. A great, there's a great clip of. Um... Dave Hill from Slade at, at his peak, and it's basically he's he's basically at his mum and dad's house, but it's like he's at his mum and dad's house, but he's dressed like Dave Hill. It looks like he's sort of performance because he obviously knows his camera's about to turn up, and Dave Hill kind of turns up to wave to the fans, and he has like hundreds of fans outside all screaming for him. But it's that thing where you can't, from a modern perspective, you just go, "Who are you screaming at? That bloke!" It just seems such a bizarre bloke to be this. Sex symbol, for, like teenage girls. It's like, him. are you sure? Are you sure? That's it. All right. Okay. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. It was in the 70s, though. Different time. They didn't have pizza back then. You know? <laughs> so, of course, they're going to be spoiled by anything. Yeah. Anything. You see a man with a bowl cut and long hair. It's like, you've met, it's going to blow your mind. Absolutely. I mean, everyone's standards were so low in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, anyone could have sex. Not like now. Um, so, so, yeah. Um, so, you went... So, uh, you. what was the first one that you watched? Bonfire of the Vanities. Mm-hmm. I watched that. Um, and it's not very good. But, you know, Brian De Palma's... Brian, it is rubbish. But Brian De Palma's comedies, as I've worked out on this rewatch, are in general so bad that Bonfire of the Vanities is kind of in the upper echelon of his comedies. And you go... You know, it's, it's a bad movie, but it's it's one of his better comedies. But it feels like yeah. desperate to be done by someone else. He's totally the wrong person to do it. I was watching it thinking, like, because what it feels like, it feels like you're watching, like, a rubbish version of Trading Places. And you go, even someone like John Landis would be much better at this sort of material. Um, mm. I think Mike Nichols, apparently, was the original choice. And you can sort of imagine That'd that. Good. Like, there you go. Yeah, that makes more sense. And they wanted Chevy Chase, I think, to be the Tom Hanks role, and you can imagine that. And they also wanted... Um, much better, much better. Uh, yeah, Steve Martin was their other choice, and it's like, yeah, you can sort of imagine them a lot more. When you see all the original people, it's like, oh, right, yeah. And um, the Bruce Willis character's meant to be English, apparently, and it was going to be like John Cleese, and you go, oh, right, OK, I can see that. I can kind of see that. Chevy Chase would have been brilliant in Bonfire the Vanities. Because he does, because he's he's used to playing assholes, mm. and that's it. It's almost, Hanks, you, you you almost forgive him, and you sort of feel like that character seems like like he is a dickhead, but you don't really. Tom Hanks is too likable. It's almost that like you you sort of start, you don't really buy him. You don't buy it. It's like, and when he wins at the end, you go, "Oh, well done," but he shouldn't because he's an asshole. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't think that. I think that the, one of the problems with the film is that everyone is so deeply unlikable. Bruce Willis isn't. Is like, yeah. I mean, he I, he's not likable. Melanie Griffith isn't a nice character. Um, Tom Hanks is uh, an asshole, and it's not like the fact that he wins at the end isn't really a surprise. But you just feel like, oh, he doesn't really earn that, and you don't. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, um, hmm, it's, yeah. It's kind of like the rich guy, the rich white guy wins. Mm. And you kind of like go, yeah, I don't know. Was this satirical at the time? 
Yeah, it feels like it's, I mean, it's definitely, the whole film's a satire, but it feels now, watching it back, it's like, I can't quite work out what you're meant to be satirising. Because it yeah. all feels like, I find it all like, that what it's actually saying is also like, I sort of disagree with it as well, fundamentally. I go, I actually disagree with a lot of what you're trying to satirise. Yeah. Like that is what it is. So and and it works a lot better in the 80s, but now it just feels a bit kind of mean-spirited and... But that's the thing, Nathaniel. It didn't work better in the 80s. It was a famous mm. flop. There's a huge yes. book written about it. Um, where's the book? I was just reading about that book. Quite What's it called? Devil, Devil's Candy? Yes, that's the one, yeah. yeah. I've got it somewhere. I can't, I can't see it. Um, um, but, but, yeah, so there's this book written about what a disaster the entire production was. So you say maybe it worked better in the 80s. It definitely didn't work better in the 80s. I think it's a very flawed film. I think it was based on a best-selling book that everyone wanted to make because it probably said something about the 80s and greed and, uh, I don't want to say, white privilege, but, like, you know, it's probably saying something about all of that. But... I think the film was like, oh, but we can't make Tom Hanks a wanker. Mm. And so the problem with the film is that they've tried to give it a happy ending and make it... But you go, these characters don't deserve a happy ending. And you've made the actors play parts that actually don't suit them, so therefore they're not particularly... I don't think that they're likeable in those roles. Mm. Whereas if you go, let's get a guy like Chevy Chase to play an arsehole... Uh, who somehow miraculously comes good at the end, or not even like not even he comes good, but like he ends up winning like by 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 default. Then you'd go, yeah. In actual fact, you've fixed eighty percent of the film now just through casting. But also, you know, we we were talking about this the other day. Is that like, are there any like classic Brian De Palma shots that? Um, are in the movie Bonfire. There's that opening bit when it's just one continuous shot of Bruce Willis on a... Um, a he's on, like a, like, a golf cart, yeah, and he's got the champagne and he's drunk and he's stumbling into people and all of that. But you go, it's not funny, though, is it? No. Is it meant to be funny? Is it meant to be funny? <laughs> I think and if it is meant to be funny... funny it's just not. If it's meant to be funny, why isn't it funny? Because you were talking about this the other night. Like it was, it was really good what you were saying about De Palma doing comedy. It's like he just can't. It's like he's he, he's sort of incapable of it. He's much better suited to doing other things. But it's like he obviously thinks he, he thinks he's really good at it. I think, and it's almost like every every third film is like a comedy, and it's always like the one it's like like difficult to get through. It's like really like. Oh, I mean, this isn't good. But, yeah, in terms of his comedies, like, weirdly, Bonfire of the Vanities is probably one of the better ones just because it's got... You can kind of see what the the humour is. Whereas, like, some of them, like, wise guys and things, are just like, this isn't remotely funny. And it feels like seen... you've missed out. You can't really, really even see what's funny about that scene. Like, it feels like entering the scene, as a viewer, you can think of about four other better comic scenarios that you could get from that scene but yeah it's like it goes right when when your instincts are oh this could be quite funny and it won't do any of the things the funny possibilities in that room and i think in, in general the best those best sort of 80s comedies in that in the era he's making comedies would be to hire lots of comic actors and comedians who have got something where they're 
they're almost collaborating in it and they could go oh what i could do here is this or i could do x y and z in this room and you can do the same scene but just make it funnier whereas it feels like he's he's fully in control but he's almost got no idea what's funny <laughs> yes yeah, he can have funny bits hmm? saying a spielberg though where you yeah. go jaws is really funny jaws has got loads of funny bits in it uh, they're funny because they break the tension and they're character driven and you learn something about the characters and then, you know, but it's not, Jaws isn't a comedy. Jaws isn't trying to be a comedy. It just has moments that are funny. So, you know, Spielberg can, because they're all like, well, they, they were like the Hollywood brats, weren't they? Spielberg, De Palma and Lucas and um, Coppola. But probably Coppola always feels like he was sort of like a generation before. Um, but you had like these young guys that were all great at making thrillers and like, these pieces of spectacle. But then, and like George Lucas, Howard the Duck. Mm. Right, I have to make this, let's make. I mean, Star Wars is a science fiction fantasy uh, fairy tale f- for kids, but kind of like accessible by everyone. Whereas Howard the Duck is this uh, comic-based comedy about a duck that looks like it's for kids but is actually for adults because Lee Thompson tries to fuck him. <laughs> and you go, I mean, it's like, it's, but it's, it's not a kid's film. And it's kind of like, it's George Lucas going, well, let's do something that's like this broad family comedy like Howard the Duck. And you go, well, Star Wars worked better at that than than what you think. Harrison Ford is really funny in those films. And, uh, and, it's, and that's not a comedy. Uh, and then you look at um, 1941 by Spielberg, and that's like, he's done Jaws, he's done Close Encounters. Now he's going to uh, work with the best of the best from Animal House and Saturday Night Live. And he's going to make this broad knockabout comedy, which is Animal House meets World War Two. And it's just the most slow, it's boring, tedious, but not one laugh in it. And you go, how is it, how is it that you haven't managed to put one laugh in it where you managed to do that in all of your straight films? You know, there's always something... And, it, and I think that that's weird. I'm not sure how funny I find De Palma's films. No. But, I mean, well, I'd say Untouchables has better gags in it than Bonfire of the Vanities does. Yeah, and, I, and they're not humorless. And, and basically, Blowout is all one big joke. Right, do you know what I mean? And, it, and it's kind of, and there is humorous stuff in Blowout. Um, yeah, I, I think it's weird, isn't it? It's weird when they just focus on that one thing. It's kind of like, ah, oh, no, it doesn't, because it doesn't work as a film either, no. because it's not doing the one thing that it set out to do. At least, you know, it's like one of those things. We should go to a song soon, but it's like one of those things, like Back to the Future. Back to the Future is a comedy, but I didn't realise that for years because I it works so well. It's like a science fiction uh, family fantasy <laughs> adventure. So it works so well as that, that it was only when I went to the cinema and realised that other people were laughing at the same bits that I laughed at, or other people were pointing out jokes that I'd never even noticed before, that you go, oh, it's a comedy, I didn't realise that. You know, it's still an amazing film because it works at that, but if you've got Bonfire of the Vanities and it doesn't work as a comedy and it barely works as a thriller, then it's kind of like, well, what's, what's the point in this then? It doesn't do the one thing it set out to do. But we do the one thing we set out to do, and that is to entertain for two hours every week. So, Nathaniel, play that song. 
Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. And we're back. And we're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. I didn't realise that song was so long. Um, sorry about that. So, <laughs> so, so um, yes, right. So, um, what is Wise Guys? A Wise Guys is like a, a mob comedy with uh, uh, Danny DeVito and Joe Piscopo, and it's rubbish. <laughs> so, what's Tough Guys? Tough Guys is Kurt Douglas and Burt Lancaster, isn't it? And that's amazing. So that another that? mob comedy. Is that another what? Mob comedy. Mob comedy. Yeah, it Plus is. At almost exactly the same time. Um, and who, but who directed that? God, I don't know. Don't know. Isn't that, so can you look up Tough Guys? And isn't that the one with Dana Carvey in it as one of their lawyers who ends up in a trailer? So then what's the one with Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood? City Heat. City Heat? Yes. Yes. And that's another one that came out about the same time, which is a sort of mob cop comedy. So there's like three of them. And they're all rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Married to the Mob would have come out probably around the same time. Uh, and that was Doug... No, that was the guy... Uh, who did Married to the Mob? Was that the guy... It was the guy that did uh, Science of the Rams. Jonathan Demme. Yeah. yeah. He did Married to the Mob. And then when they did uh, Science of the Rams... So Science of the Rams was originally... Snapped up as a property by anyone, 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 anyone? No, Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman owned the rights to Science of the Lambs because he wanted to adapt it for himself to play. And oh. then they went and wrote the script, and Gene Hackman was like, it's too dangerous. Uh, no, too dangerous. It's too violent for me. I can't do it because I don't agree with how violent it is. And uh, then they, he sold the rights back, and Jonathan Demme got it. And then for ages, uh, it was like, well, I want Michelle Pfeiffer to do it because I've had such a great experience with her on Married to the Mob. And then um, uh, Jodie Foster was just like, I'm always playing victims. Like in every film that I've ever played, I've played like a victim. And I don't want her to play victims anymore. And I think Clary Starling is like a really strong character. Um, uh, and she's a woman in a man's world, but she's not a victim. And uh, her whole thing is about like, protecting victims. Uh, and so she fought for it for ages. And he was just like, I really want Michelle Pfeiffer, I'm afraid. She's already cast. And then Michelle Pfeiffer read it. It was like, it's too violent. What are you doing? And so then um, Jodie Foster got it. And then they got Anthony Hopkins. And the rest, as they say, is... The middle movie of a trilogy. Um, yeah. You see, uh, what have you done? You went to the cinema? I went to the cinema twice. So I saw Bill and Ted, uh, which we talked about next week. <laughs> um, and I saw Tenet. 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 And um, what do you think of yeah. Tenet? When I think of Tenet, i tell you this. One of the main characters in Tenet, played by Robert Pattinson, uh, and it's like kind of like a typical Christopher Nolan, 
um, uh, mind-bending action thriller. Yeah? Mm -hmm. One of the main characters is called Neil. And that pretty much sums up how I feel about Tenet. It's a bit when he's running through a battlefield and people are going, you can do it, Neil! <laughs> and you go, that is why... That is why action heroes are called Gabe Walker and... Uh, Tom Stryker. Oh. Yeah, and John Matrix and uh, Neo. You know, it's kind of like... Because no-one wants to spend two and a half hours watching a guy called Neil uh, solving, solving yeah. a, global, a global crisis. Um, so... Uh, so I... Um, so... For where I'm coming from at this, I think that uh, it was really great that Warner Brothers released Tenet at the cinema. I think cinemas were crying out for it. I think a lot of them, I'm not sure if it was a, 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 just exclusively an American thing, but a lot of cinemas were feeling um, sort of betrayed a little bit by Disney for releasing Mulan. They had, I just remember seeing images. Um, I love cinema. I love going to the cinema. I'm worried that Maybe all of this will mean it's the end of cinema and everyone realises it's more fun to do stuff at home. And, um, and yeah, I like doing stuff at home, but I also love going to the cinema. And, if, and, and there are so many great cinemas, some near me, some that I've got to travel for, some that I've been to in my past, that have like, that are sort of foundation blocks on what I love about, you know, living. And going to the cinema, getting a packet of uh, Maltesers and a, a large Fanta was one of my... I don't do that anymore because I'm nearly 40. But it was... Um, well, I'm just trying not to... But, I mean, oh, God. What a combination. And then it almost didn't matter what film you were watching because I just like going to the cinema. But, um... So I think that Christopher Nolan getting it right... Because they cancelled Bond. Bond was ready at Easter. Yeah. And then they cancelled that. Um, and you kind of, like, go, well, Christopher Nolan... It's weird that Christopher Nolan hasn't made a Bond film yet. And I think, like, Inception is about as close as it gets. But how I feel about Christopher Nolan is... My favourite Christopher Nolan film is uh, Insomnia. And that is the one that no-one likes. And I think it's great. I think uh, Robin Williams is great in it. Al Pacino is great in it. The direction is brilliant. I thought it was really tense. It's a great thriller. I like Memento. Uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, I mean... I. Probably, I like most of Batman Begins, but it gets a bit silly. Um, I like all of Dark Knight, but I think it's very sort of like... Uh, it goes out of its way not to be fun. And I don't like Dark Knight Rises at all. And then The Prestige... Uh, yeah, so I'm not, like a, I'm not like a massive Christopher Nolan fan. But I, I, I appreciate what he's done. And I appreciate what he does. And he makes. I, I really like. What was the what was the um, one that he made? The war film that he made a couple of years okay. ago. Okay. Dunkirk. That, I thought that was fantastic. I loved that. Brilliant. I love it. Dunkirk was the thing that kind of brought me back. He kind of lost me around the Dark Knight trilogy, and I was like, I don't think I like these films. And Dunkirk, did he do Interstellar? Yeah. Yeah. No, and, I, I, so I've never seen Interstellar, but yes, Dark Knight trilogy. I thought was okay, and I thought. Dunkirk was brilliant. I think it's just such a smartly made film that feels like it has that really impressive thing about it where you go, 
not even sure I'd begin to know how you'd go about making this. It's just such an impressive... Like, and, and I think what he's really good at is spectacle. And I think Dunkirk is like... Just, I think it's an amazing thing to look at. And I love all the stories and I love the way it tells that story in different times and different cuts between, I think, four different stories and they're all happening in different times that get closer and closer together. And there's one point where they kind of all intersect and then they're... I just think it's, I think it's such, such a smart film. I mm. really, really like it. Yeah. And I think this film, Tenet, um, thought it was being a lot cleverer than it really was. I think that... I, I, I don't mind... Um, I don't mind a complicated plot and I don't mind a film... Uh, well, I guess like Inception, where you're kind of like trying to fear, try, trying to trying to follow it. You may be like a couple of steps behind, and then at the end, it all sort of like ties together. You like go, oh, and then you can sort of like make your own decision about what's going on. I don't want to have to more. I don't want to have to make up my own decision scene by scene about what's going on. I was lost almost instantly on the plot, and I don't think that's a clever film. I think that's a film that's not actually included. There's a there's a bit near the end where it's the first time they really dumb it down, right? And I think they do it. They do it quite early on in Inception, where they go, "This is what we're doing, and now we're doing it." And then the rest of the film, you just basically they do what they say they're going to do, right? Uh, and with this, I don't really feel like there was ever a scene where they actually properly explained what it was that you were watching for two and a half hours. And then at the end, there's this bit where um, some people are travelling forward in time, some people are travelling backwards in time. And uh, he goes, and they're all army guys, and he goes, right, um, you guys are going to be wearing red because you're going forward in time. You guys are going to be wearing blue because you're going backwards in time. And uh, we're going to attempt to do that. And then you, you go, right, you've dumbed it down. He's even got a diagram where he dumbs it all down and says, this is what we're all doing. And you kind of go, you know, you're right, okay, I am on board with this. And then I instantly got lost again. I was like, I don't know... What it, what their mission is? I don't understand what their mission is. I know that I know who's doing what and who's wearing, and I didn't get it. And I was just kind of like, I think if you're um, making a mainstream film and you're watching it in the cinema where it has your undivided attention, if you don't understand it, still, it's their fault. Do you know what I, I mean? I, it's I, like if you're I, watching I, a film with the lights are down, you're not. It's not like you're at home and you're half watching something or whatever. I, I, like, if you're watching a film in a cinema, I think that's their fault. I think they haven't done a, a good enough job in not making it make sense. I was just thinking, he just went one step... I, so there's that. I also thought the script was atrocious. Like, it was awful. Um, they, I'd, I've never heard... Uh, I've never heard... I've never spent two, two and a half hours and heard the word algorithms more times in my life. Like, they say... <laughs> oh, there are scenes where they're saying algorithms, 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 like over and over again. And there's a scene where um, uh, Senator Washington's son, what's, his, what's he called? Uh, John David Washington. John David Washington is talking to this, this lady, and it's almost like they, they wrote that scene in a David Bowie, let's cut up newspaper headlines and stick that together, and that'll be a scene. And, you're, and it's kind of like, maybe... Maybe now I'm saying it out loud, maybe it's the sort of scene that if you played it backwards, it would still make the same amount of sense. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like the, 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 thing, for, the thing for Tenet is that there the, are the, these things that travel back in time. But I was never fully uh, 
uh, I was I never fully understood what was, what is the thing that goes back in time because they're talking about these bullets at the beginning and they explain it through bullets. Because when they say the bullets that travel back through, I don't know who's going back through. I don't know what's going. I don't know what's going on. And then I, I don't think the script explained it. And I noticed it was Christopher Nolan by himself that wrote it. And he normally works with Jonathan or um, uh, uh, or Goya. And you go like, right, okay. So I don't, I don't really. So I, I, it felt like there were conversations that were being had by people that, um, and Christopher Nolan has never had an actual conversation with a human being in his life. It's like, <laughs> like none of this makes none of this makes any sense to me. I don't understand the plot. Uh, there were bits of spectacle, but I just found like waiting, waiting between the things because I wasn't on board. I found it so incredibly boring and frustrating, and I didn't think there were any likable characters, and um, and it was like, uh, and I, I I was get I was getting annoyed. I found the film annoying. Didn't let me in at any point, and I spent the rest of the evening kind of like going fucking hell. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, um, <laughs> involuntary, involuntarily, like, drifting off thinking about it again and then going, fuck me. Like, so I, I, I like complicated films and I like interesting films um, and I like intelligent films. Um, and I think it's great that he's released it. And it is, like, it is sort of like, if he'd have, been, if he, if he'd have released Inception now, it would have been like the, a must-see film where he'd all go. But with this, I just felt like um, he just... He didn't explain enough to let the majority of the audience enjoy it. And so you're just sat there going, I'm, I'm not... It's not even that I'm confused anymore, it's that I'm not engaged and I'm not enjoying it. And, and then there's a couple of really great moments and there's some pretty cool special effects. But do you know what I mean? A lot of the special effects are literally... Uh, watching something being played backwards. So you've got like a, a a boat, you've got a yacht that's sailing through the ocean and then the waves are crashing backwards on it. And you go, yeah, but you know who did this a lot better? Red Dwarf in Series 3 when they did the episode backwards, you know? It's kind of like, it, it had kind of one of them circular plots where everything like ties up and you go, yeah, and they did it in half an hour and I understood what was going on and it was fun. So, Yeah. I mean, I hated it. <laughs> and what I would say is, but what I would say is, I think that that's a dangerous thing to say at this stage because of because cinema is very sort of like tenuous. So what I would say is, go and see Bill and Ted. It was so much fun. Yeah. While you've got the opportunity to, like, um, I guess I think at the cinema there was about as many people that were going to see uh, Tenet on a weekday as they went to see Bill and Ted on a weekend, and uh, and. Um, and like I said, I just found like watching those two guys on screen together for the first time in ooh, twenty, nearly 30, twenty-nine, yeah, twenty-nine years. 20, yeah, that's crazy. Watching them on screen together was just like it was brilliant. Uh, and then I watched Freaked. Then I watched Freaked, and Freaked is Freaked is incredible. Um, but like, yeah, I really, and I'm not like an anti Christopher Nolan. I just this film was just like um, uh, confusing non-inclusive and and but but you know what maybe what i'll do is i'll sit down and i'll watch uh, a youtube video where somebody explains to me <laughs> the plot of tenet and i'll think it's genius but 
if you didn't give me the tools to sort of like learn that in the film, then it's kind of like I'm sort of pissed off. There were some really cool bits that you were like, if I understood this, that would have been brilliant. You know, or, or if that was like the rug pull where you go, oh, no, they've done that. It's like, it's great. But there's like this one twist towards the end where you can see it coming from fucking like halfway through the film. As soon as it's introduced almost, you go, yeah, I get it. I know. And then they do it. And so, and, it, and they do it. And they're like, nah, you didn't see that coming. You go, yeah, instantly. As soon as you mentioned it. So it's not that clever. It's not, it's not so clever that it, they've hidden their tracks, but it is just kind of like, it's just impenetrable. I found it impenetrable, but maybe it's because I'm an idiot. No, I right. think, as I say, if it's, if, if, if you're given all the stuff and you're watching a film and it's got your undivided attention, it's their fault for not, doing a better job of telling that story, I think. Anyway, let's do some fan mail. So here he is, here's the legend. How's, uh, how's uh, uh, lockdown for you, Brian? Oh, it's great. Let's get started. OK, here we go. <laughs> here we go, Kitty Winkies. Here's the fan mail. How's lockdown? Dear and Nat, I recently watched On the Basis of Sex and I absolutely loved it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a real badass. Have you watched it? Cheers, Kate. I haven't. Have you? I haven't either. No, never. Oh, well. All right. Never mind. All right, then. Evening. Do you do much dancing and do you have a signature move? Mine would be the running man, but I'm looking to expand my repertoire. Wonderful, Stevens. Uh, I do I'm love not at all. I, I'd love to be able to dance, or not even to be able to dance. I don't, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too self-conscious to dance. I can never do it. Well, the thing is that you are able to dance. There's no right or wrong way of dancing unless it's it like one of those competitions where it's like crafts and there is a right and wrong way of doing it. But um, I would just say, uh, I like dancing on my own in my kitchen uh, and then there's no one to judge me. What I'd say to you, Nat, is, um, is dance like uh, no one is watching and sing like no one is listening and do foobar assuming that no one's listening and uh, you'll be all right. Okay. Hi, Nick and Nat. Nick, I love your little anecdotes. My favourite one is the one about you pissing in a bush to avoid a fan. That's crazy, Marco. I don't remember that. that. <laughs> I don't think that was me. I don't think I did that. <laughs> well, thanks, Marco. I mean, the great thing about my anecdotes is once you've heard all of mine, you can just make your own Nick Helm anecdotes up. That's great. <laughs> thanks, Marco. Um, Dear Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf. I've got into a steamy erotic. I've got into steamy erotic dramas and was hoping you could suggest some for me to watch. Thank you, Leonard. P.S. Do you like spooning? Love spooning. Um, my favourite spoon manoeuvre is the ladle. Um, and steamy erotic dramas. What do you mean? You into steamy erotic dramas? Well, I think that you can't go wrong with the people's pervert, Michael Douglas. Uh, he made a trilogy. He made a, his trilogy of filth, uh, Fatal Attraction, Basic Instinct, Disclosure. Uh, who, who doesn't love them? Nine and a half weeks, not very good. Um, and then, what's the what, Jade. There was a film called Jade. Okay. Sliver. Yeah, uh, I quite I quite enjoyed Sliver. Uh, but that was 
this, I think The Specialist is great. I think it's a great action film. You've got a great bad guy. You've got a great Sylvester Sloan performance. And you've got a great Sharon Stone performance. And it is, the whole film is just dripping with, with sweat and semen. It's just like one of the most trashy movies ever made. And I love The Specialist. Uh, it's not loads of sex in it, but there is some sex in it. And I think it's, uh, if that's what you're looking for, fill your boots. Uh, as a last resort, obviously, if you can do it into uh, handkerchiefs and do that. Dear, dear Nick, oh, hello Nick, I see, I see you enjoy a hat. What does your head smell like? Answer as well, Nat, please, good woman. Uh, my head... head. Uh, my head smells like uh, whatever uh, shampoo I used. I'm lying. Uh, I've barely ever washed my hair. My hair smells like sweat and cheese. Uh, hey, love your guests. Charles Eston was sick. I'm sorry, uh, that get well soon, Charles. After hearing him, I, I, I want to be a country singer and do a duet with Willie Nelson. I need your help with this. What can I do? Melvin. Hmm. How do you need our help? You need to tell us what we can do to help. Tell you what, Melvin. You write and record a song. Send it in and we'll play it. Maybe, maybe what we'll do, guys, on the lead up to Christmas, we're going to have a, a country and western competition. And we want, what, what we want all of our fans to do is to write and record, uh, as professionally as you can, a country and western song, send them in, and we'll play, uh, we'll, we'll have a country and western off uh, just before Christmas. Yeah. Great. Definitely got to do that. That's what we'll do. That's what we'll definitely do that. Uh, so send them in. Your deadline is Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> send in the entries. For our big competition launching today. Melvin Melvin needs a shot in the arm. And so we're going to do for the whole of October. It's country and western October. And we are going to we get all of, all, of, all of the fan club fans out there just um, put pen to paper. Because Melvin needs the encouragement. And I think uh, stiff competition is really what, what actually improves people. So, um... So good. All right, Melvin. Hope that's helped. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing your, your work. And uh, the winner will win an evening of your choice with Nathaniel Metcalf. So, uh, that was the final. Lockdown permitted. Lockdown permitted. So, it's time for our second song, and then I'll go for a wee, and then we'll get a guest on. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're, and we're back, we're live in our studio. We're not live, uh, pre-recording, and we're not in the studio. I'm in my living room, and says Nathaniel, he's in his uh, living room. And we're joined now by a special guest, David, David Hepworth, uh, music journalist, writer, publishing industry analyst, and also the launcher of innumerous British music magazines. Uh, hello, David. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. We are impressed. We're impressed with your music room, which you... Uh, well, it's, 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 it's got some of your records in. Right. And it's, what, just, what? it's the attic at the top of the house, really. Yeah, go on. 
And is it is it um, and are you saying that they're just accumulation of records? But are they in any specific order? How do you? Oh, they're they're roughly alphabetical, very roughly alphabetical. Right. Uh, I don't put them back quite as scrupulously as I ought to, but I, I do it alphabetically. So I have to face the alphabet um, fans' dilemmas, like. Captain Beefheart, under C or under B? That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have long conversations with other record bores about yeah, the appropriate yeah, way to do that. But well, I don't I do it do do by genres. They, they're, stri- they're all alphabetical. Yeah, that's the best but, way. Because, because how can you kind of... Um, uh, genre is so kind of elastic now anyway that it's very difficult to say what is and what isn't a specific genre, right? You see, I'm so old, I remember going into record shops and they were just artists A to Z. And, that, yeah. and, then, and then there was comedy and then there might be films. And that, that was your lot, pretty much. And nowadays, if I go into Rough Trade East like I did the other day, the subdivisions are absolutely mind-boggling, you know, particularly when you get the world of dance, which is just sliced up into loads of yeah. tiny little areas, it seems to me. I, I'm sort of like quite familiar with the album covers of Raikuda because for years I'd go into our price and I'd have to go through Raikuda to get to Alice Cooper. Oh, and I see. So, I re- Alice Cooper's <laughs> under C, was it? Okay, now that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's an interesting one because when I worked in HMV, I'm trying to think now, which is going back a long time ago, mid 70s, I think Alice Cooper was an A. I think it was. Well, Alice Cooper's weird because Alice Cooper was a band. Yes, quite. Called, called Alice Cooper, and then it was a man called yeah, Alice absolutely. Cooper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an so awesome. I think it, it, could count, it could count as both. I've yeah. got a question to you. I've got, I've just, this has just occurred to me, but I've got a question to you, a few, about LPs. And you know the dust... The, so I'll get... I'll have a few drinks and I'll listen to the albums and I'll put them away, but I've ended up with an accumulation of um, dust... Jackets that you get, you know, that you get I mean, inside the clear, the, actual... the clear plastic things. Do you mean no, the things no, that go on the, the outside? No, the paper ones. Oh, the inner bag. On okay. Yeah. And right. I think they're really mixed up. And does that mean that if I haven't linked it up with like the original record, the record isn't worth as much as it would oh, be? Oh well, God no. Well, I'm sure I'm sure people who calculate records on the basis of what they're worth, which I I do not keep track of at all. I'm sure they'd say that with you're better off with the original one that you had at the time. And you'll find record balls that say, oh, actually, that's from the later reissue of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and they'll always... Because uh, what I find nowadays is I meet younger people who know far more about my old records than I do because there's just more right. to know nowadays. And that knowledge, you know, passes around more readily than it ever used to, you know. So you'll come across... If you're going to find the world expert on Neil Young, it's probably somebody who's 24. Well, everything's so catalogued now, isn't it? And on the internet, it stays there. So you don't have that opportunity now to have to try and find everything out for yourself. It's no, absolutely. All, all, all the knowledge is there. And, you know, as, as I've found writing books about this stuff, you know, the, the, amount, of, the amount of historical knowledge just grows exponentially all the time, you know, because... Everybody in the world does their own, you know, does their own book. Everybody in the world makes their own Netflix movie. You know, everybody has their own YouTube channel. So the amount of material about absolutely anybody, let alone the Beatles, is absolutely huge and is is growing all the time. I'm but sure. Also, you know. also because because two of the Beatles are still alive, 
there is still more information and secrets that are coming out about that time when they were together. So it, it even just change, history changes, or what we know about history changes, just by people still being alive. Yeah, I suppose so. But I always get the feeling when you're, you know, I've interviewed Paul McCartney a few times, and he kind of defers to Mark Lewison, really, in terms of the detail about, you know, what day that happened. And, you know, because Mark Lewison will have gone back and checked, whereas all Paul McCartney has to rely on is his memory, for, which is from a long, long time ago, you know. And if you're Paul McCartney, you have met everybody in the world. It's yeah. a really funny thing. When you meet Paul McCartney, and I've only done it a few times, he always acts as if he remembers you. Which I thought, well, at first I thought, well, this is immensely diplomatic. That's a real politician skill to do that. And then I thought, well, actually, Paul McCartney probably goes through life thinking he has met everybody. Hmm. I always feel that Paul McCartney <laughs> doesn't know that he was in the Beatles. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Out of everyone in, in the, he doesn't understand the impact of the Beatles because it happened around him. But to him, he's always Paul McCartney. I suppose so. I, I, I actually, I disagree with you. I think he does understand the Beatles because he's had this strange kind of Indian summer in his career that via the tragedy of John Lennon dying, that he's a Paul McCartney has effectively been able to be the Beatles for the last twenty-five years. You yeah. know, and he goes on, he goes on tour, obviously not at the moment, with a bunch of musicians who are eminently schooled in being the Beatles. You know, they, they're the world's best. Beatles cover band, <laughs> and he gets to be the Beatles in front of, you know, an audience made up of four or five generations of people who all came to the Beatles in a totally different, at a totally different time, you know. So that, that's a very, that's a very rare thing. John Lennon didn't know this at all, obviously, you know. Yeah. That whole thing was not, in, you know, was not invented at the time he was alive. But... Um, no, I was writing about, I was writing a thing about John Lennon for it because he's, he's, he's about to be his 80th, the 80th anniversary of his um, birth. And I was writing a thing for Radio Times the other day about it. And uh, you know, the, Elton John was recalling when John Lennon went on stage with him, I think in 1974 at Madison Square Garden, he came on to do an encore. And before he did it, he was sick backstage. He was so nervous, which is really interesting because... I think what happened with John Lennon, he's only ever been on stage with the Beatles, really. And so if you, if you look round to your, your right and your left, and all you ever see is George Harris, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, you think, well, I'm in the Beatles. It's not me, I'm in the Beatles. You know, it's like, yeah. being, it's like being in the Liverpool side or something like that. You think, well, we'll get through this. You know, it's not relying on me. We're suddenly exposed on his own. Oh, my God, this is absolutely bloody nerve-wracking. Yeah. I have sympathy for that. I think that's one of the great things I really enjoy about your books is that I think over the years, and I'm I'm now in my early 40s, and I'm already aware that things like the 90s, which is a sort of period of music that I lived through, is sort of rewritten every sort of five sure. or six years. And it feels like... So now younger people have this idea of what 90s music was like, and you almost have to say... But it actually wasn't really like that. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like your books are almost the best definition, I think, of it being, but, you know, it wasn't really like that. It's these <laughs> sort of, like, oral histories that repeated and repeated so that we have now, you know, BBC4 documentaries that we know punk happened at a time when um, 
there was uh, bin men on strike. Well, this, is, this is really interesting you should raise that because I just, I've just recently been writing a, a, an outline for a documentary film. I won't say what it's about, but it's kind of music-based subject. And, uh, you know, so it's going through the 70s. Uh, and, uh, yeah, obviously, there's that sort of incidence of punk and so forth. And I'm talking to a guy, a very, very kind of polished, you know, guy who develops films, a young bloke. Well, I say young bloke, 30s, probably, I don't know. And, uh, and then he, he kept saying, and that was when the rubbish was piled high in Leicester Square. And I, I'm sorry, I just disabused him of this, because that, that actually happened quite a few years later, I think, I think it actually did, you know. But it's obviously just lodged itself in his mind... You know, so it's become part of the cultural history of the of, of the country. You know, and uh, you know my my very old, very good friend Mark Cooper, who's kind of up until recently has been overseeing all these Friday night BBC Four documentaries. You know, I got I got a lunch with Mark, and I said, Mark, you're terrible, terribly to blame for the fact that people have got this completely wrong-headed view. You know, it's not that Mark's done it; it's just loads of producers have done it, and they all kind of repeat it. But, you know, going back to your point, you know, like I always say that the, most books of kind of rock and roll history nowadays, like most books of history of the First World War, of the Second World War, they're written by people who weren't there. So, you know, I, the stuff I write about was largely stuff I kind of remember, you know. Yes. And yes. so that's just a, it, it, it's a little bit of a corrective to, uh, to, some, to some of the myths, you know. But, yeah, I think, I'm sure you're right about, about the 90s. Because it just drove me. I was actually I was just looking at it now. First Britney Spears single, 20 years ago. Yeah. 21 yeah. years ago. My <laughs> God, that's the kind of thing that makes me but think. Also, but also, um, at the time, uh, my favourite... Uh, Britpop band was something like Cooler Shaker or Menswear, and now you look back and they don't really even feature in this is the history of Britpop, you know? I suppose not. That's funny, isn't it? Maybe, yeah, Britpop is so kind of occupied by, by the Oasis and Blur, isn't it? There's kind of no room for anybody else. I, I don't know, maybe that'll change in due course, you know, because, uh, you know, what we've found about the 60s and, and certainly the 70s is just about everybody in the 70s got rediscovered as a kind of cult hero, you know. And, I mean, the you know, I remember Nick Drake dying, and it was not a big thing. Mm. It, was, it was just, oh, it was that guy who put three albums out on Island Records that nobody yeah. bought. And they, mm-hmm. they, they always thought he was really, he was quite good. But it wasn't a big thing at all. But, you know, yeah. what you do is you get later generations to come along and they, they look at somebody like Nick Drake and they, they, they elect somebody like Nick Drake, even though Nick Drake lived 40 years before they were born or whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, with Nick Drake, Brad Pitt did a BBC Three documentary about why he loves Br- uh, Nick Drake. And you go, I like Nick Drake because of Brad Pitt. Do you know what I mean? Because he told me about it. So it's kind of like... Well, Joe, Joe, yeah. Boy, Joe Boyd, who, who kind of discovered Nick Drake and produced him as a whole. He said that he, he constantly getting people coming to him saying, I want to make a film about the life of Nick Drake. And, and he says, you do realise the life of Nick Drake was the most boring life ever lived. He stayed indoors, he smoked a lot of dope, and then he died. You know what I mean? He, he just didn't do anything. He, he only played about four gigs in his life. You know, He hardly spoke to anybody. 
But basically what they're saying, what Brad Pitt and all these people are saying is, I'd like to be as deep as Nick Drake. I'd like to be associated with the idea of Nick Drake. It's a very, very powerful thing. And it's more powerful because he only did those three, three records and then never, as Elvis Costello famously said, never hung around to see his own decline. So he didn't do anything to mess it up. <laughs> it was absolutely perfect, you know. But, well, I mean, even Drake had like 10, 15 years when nobody talked about him at all. And I think even someone like yourself is in that kind of rarefied world of rock journalism where you're aware of other things that maybe the general public aren't. I remember being at school and a teacher telling us that uh, Kurt Cobain had committed suicide. And um, most of our class hadn't heard of it. Really? And that's, and that's, so how, that's interesting. How old were you then? I would have been 13. Really? And I, knew, and I think a couple of other people knew, but we had a teacher who was quite a cool teacher right. who was telling oh, us yeah. in this way. And I remember it being a thing that I was expecting everyone would know who he was. But at that time, people just didn't seem to know. It wasn't... I mean, I think there was lots of... I guess the music that would have been listened to at my school would have been mainly chart music at the time. Yeah, for people. Yeah. And so even also, in that world, it's not... It's a bit, it depends who you were hanging out with, because yeah, um, sure. I, I was 12, and um, uh, it was all of, the, all of the older kids that hung around the art department and the music block that knew who Kurt Cobain was. And, yeah, like, the majority of the school was mainstream, but they were kind of, like, underground. And it was even <laughs> stuff like MTV Unplugged that made them, that made them really sort of popular. Mm. I, I suppose so, but don't you think it's also the case that strikes me increasingly that things are bigger long after they've happened nowadays than yeah. they are at the time that they happened. Yeah. Because I, re I realised this, my, um, my son-in-law, this is a few years ago now, w was going to see the Stone Roses. And this is, you know, they're reformed or whatever. And I said, so where are they playing? It's at Wembley. I said, oh, arena? He said, no, stadium. I said, you're telling me that the Stone Roses, <laughs> long after they've ceased being in of interest to anybody, are playing a gig, a venue that they could never have played in their pomp. Yeah. And who are they playing for? I'll tell you who they're playing for, Tim, my son-in-law. They're playing for people who missed them the first time around. Because yeah. that's what happens with absolutely everything. And so... You know, that, most people, who get, obviously, most people who go and see Paul McCartney are people who didn't see him first time around. And, uh, you know, my, I was talking to my uh, other relatives of mine, they, they had tickets to see, they were going to spend a fortune going to see Elton John in Middlesbrough. You went, this is, again, a gig called off, you know, a pandemic. I think you're going to pay £100 to see Elton John from about 10 miles away. His voice is shot, you know. You're going to see him play some songs that, that you know, were famous in 1972. And, but that's just the way it works. And it works with, it'll work with that way with everybody. Well, well, when, but, when people are, but when people are current, you have your fan base. And then you have years and years of people on the radio. And you have your diehard fans that come support you in back rooms and bars until you get into kind of like music halls and stuff. And you might not ever make it to Wembley, but you have your diehard fans that get you to, you know, those places, those venues. And then uh, you go away for a bit, and then the, the, that grows. And it's not, it's not people that love you that come and see you. It's people that go, yeah, that's something to do tonight. Yeah. <laughs> do you know I mean? 
It's not, you kind of like, don't rely on your diehard fans. You rely on your reputation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, the media, the media, you know, <laughs> uh, just, you know, it, it develops that reputation all the time, you know. So everybody becomes, everybody becomes iconic, don't they? Really quickly. Well, Eventually. It's something that, uh, in your book, the new book is Overpaid, over sex Over Here, and it's sort of the British invasion of America. And a band that yeah. is really prominently is someone like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And I'm always baffled that when, when... Led Zeppelin's a great example, that whenever you see, like, those little lads and they reprint the ads of a show they're doing, it's always in, like, a boating set, and you go, that's tiny! <laughs> well, no, you're talking about... You're, you're talking about one specific case in 1971... Led Zeppelin did a back to the clubs tour in Britain because they thought they thought they were getting too removed from their fans because they'd been playing, I don't know, probably, you know, quite modest sized venues in the States, but seemed big to them. And so they went back and they did um they famously played the Nottingham Boat Club. Maybe which, that's what I've seen, yeah. That's the one, uh, which I think where, where Nottingham University Students' Union used to have their kind of gigs there. But it certainly wouldn't be big of a few hundred people. And I think the tickets were a pound. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Because it absolutely fascinates me. Those, the, all, the, all those questions of value, you know, the people say, oh, it's inflation, all these things. But here's the point. When Led Zeppelin were really big in the 70s, to buy their record would cost you £2.99. To go and see them would cost you half that. Now, I know Led Zeppelin aren't around anymore, but if they were, their music would be effectively given away free, but to go and see them, would, people would pay £1,000. They would pay more than £1,000, actually. And probably, you know, if this current problem ever gets sorted out, when it comes back, they will be paying a few thousand pounds. And, uh, and that's the thing that nobody ever foresaw because the, the public for Led Zeppelin back you know, in the 70s, like the public for the Sex Pistols or anybody, was quite small. You know, it was people between the ages of 15 and 30. And it was people who couldn't be bothered to go and queue or knew it was happening or read the NME or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Nowadays... The universe to go and see anybody is everybody in the world has got a credit card and an inter internet connection. Yeah. And, and would also like to slightly have some kudos over their neighbours or workmates or whatever about having gone to see people. Because half the thing is people want to tell you that they've been to see people. Mm. And I, I, don't think, I don't think that was the case 40 years ago. Because it's almost that now it's someone says, oh, I went to see the Rolling Stones. You go, sure. But if you went to see them last year, it doesn't feel like a big deal. <laughs> it doesn't feel like... So if you saw them 50 years ago, you go, all oh, right, what was that like? But it almost feels that you're not even really seeing... the back. You're seeing a sort of... Almost like a sort of covers band or something. Or like well, you, you'll probably be in a different postal code from them anyway, won't you? Is, is <laughs> a, a, the expression C is somewhat relative, isn't it? And, uh, and you... I'm always amazed people tell me this. We're going to Hyde Park to see Bruce Springsteen. And I think, why are you doing that? You're not going to see it. You're not going to hear it. You're going to come away feeling vaguely bad-tempered that you've paid a lot of money and you haven't got what you wanted. Go down the road and see somebody else that you'll enjoy, you know, both 
but people, there is just a, it is kind of, it's peer pressure, I suppose. Uh, it's like my, one of my daughters always says that the reason, the reason Glastonbury is so big is because of Instagram. Because half the people at Glastonbury are taking pictures to show other people that they're at Glastonbury. Yeah, uh, yes. And while they're, sorry, but while they're taking the pictures, they're not actually watching the gig. Um, I stood behind someone that filmed the entire Aerosmith concert. I was like, and you just go, you, he's, and we were really near the front. And I was like, he's 10 feet away. Just look <laughs> at him. It was, yeah. yeah. And I mean, also, what, what's the guy going to do? When he goes home, is he going to get his mates around and say, I'll tell you what, we're going to look at my phone where I've got film of an Aerosmith gig. No, he's not going to do that at all. He just somehow that's sort of, consumed it. But that's sort of what it is in uh, in a, a microcosm, right? Is that at the time you're actually at the gig and it doesn't mean anything. But then afterwards you're kind of telling people that you were there and then it becomes a thing. Oh, is that what I like, and so, so in terms of like history, you know, when, if you were there, it was a blip. But in in hindsight, everything has got kind of like this like majesty to it. Uh, I suppose uh, you see, uh, I, uh, at the risk of sounding like a, a survivor of the Battle of Waterloo, I'm so old that I can remember the days when, when you saw, you know, this particularly applied to a pop group on the telly. When they popped up on the telly, you were only going to see it once. You would never see it again. And so you watched it with every, every faculty completely engaged. And you stored it away in your head, and you never thought you would ever see it again. Now, nowadays, everything, people, whatever they're watching, they think, I'm going to see it again. Mm. I'm going to see it innumerable times from different angles. So it's a different intensity. Well, it's not, it's not intense. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably true what you say, you know, that it's a blip at the time. But, you, you know, where they get the enjoyment is the replay of it. Yeah, that's probably true. Probably your engagement with that artist is different as well. Because if you're listening to a record with earphones on, you're, you, you're probably more likely to sort of fall in love with artists more because you're having much more engagement than you would with something that you might hear on a radio and think, oh, well, that's quite nice. Maybe if I hear it four more times, it'll stick in my head and I'll go, I'll remember to buy it or whatever. It's that sort of... Um... Yeah, well, people don't even buy it anymore, do they? No, it's right. interesting. It's interesting. I, I always think that the giveaway word that, that came into use about, I don't know, 25 years ago, which never used to be used in relation to pop music, was tune. People talk about tunes nowadays. I like this. My tunes. I like this tunes. It, it kind of belittles these things. <laughs> Is yes, they're like toys, <laughs> yeah. and they're they're sort of interchangeable. <laughs> and once they, if they if I lose these, it doesn't matter. I'll get some more tunes. And well, uh, like that's more something. That's it's almost like we've just reverted to something like that. Um, people's grandparents might refer to it. It's in that way that we've sort of gone full circle, and we've had this era where everyone sort of intensely likes music and now it's these sort of things that people might whistle again you know as, as yes i suppose i suppose that's true that's true and you know you you do everything nowadays you listen to music and you watch films or whatever with your finger on the on the on the button on the button that can take you away from it mm. and so so what that finger is doing 
is reassuring you that you will never be bored. And so <laughs> boredom was the great driver of pop music. Boredom is why people did things. There's now, and I, I, I speak as, you know, I've seen this in my own kids who are grown up nowadays, grown up now, but and my grandchildren and so forth. Nobody's bored anymore. They're just slightly distracted. <laughs> you know, they just, you just feel, oh, there could be something slightly better over there. You know what I mean? Whereas boredom was a bit of an engine, you know, when, when, it, when there was bugger all else to do, you did something. You know? But it's not even slightly better over there. It's there's something else boring right here. It's like it's like I'll be I'll be watch. It's a choice of how much boring. You know, I'll be watching a film in my house, and I'll have my phone in my hand, and then I'll be going on my emails. And it's like this isn't better than the film. It might be it might be equally boring, but it's not better. No, that's true. That's true. That's true. I think of the hours that you spend flicking through Netflix. As compared to the, as compared to the time you spend watching a, actually watching a film on Netflix, because um, but what's what's on. better though? What's better is is because uh, the thing is when when you're scrolling through Netflix, you have infinite possibilities, yeah. and when you've picked it, you're like you're stuck with your decision. <laughs> yeah, if you, if if you're watching it with another person, you're stuck with your decision because you've had to you've had to say let's watch this. <laughs> So now, now you start. I I wrote about this in my previous book, A Fabulous Creation, which is about the L, the era of the LP. And I was I was remembering the days when you know I was living in flats in North London in the seventies, whatever. And you 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 go and buy an album, which would would cause you a lot of heart searching. You'd stand there in the shops, do I want this one? Do I want this? Because you couldn't afford a lot, you know. And you'd you'd go back with uh, you know tries to pick up album. I don't know. Yeah, Stevie Wonder's talking but and you'd arrive in your flat and um and your flatmate would go, What's, what you got there? And you can get out of the bag. It's a new album by Stevie Wonder. <laughs> and they go, mm. and you go, it's really good. <laughs> and then you'd have to hope to God that it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> It's the worst bloody thing in the world. Now, happily, Talking Book is really good. Uh, the worst thing in the world is if it wasn't, because it was like you'd introduced a new flatmate that they weren't going to get on with, because, <laughs> you know, you only had a small, small number of records in the flat, and so everybody kind of, everybody shared in them. So you, you had to, it, it required a certain amount of commitment to buy something and to go home with it. Uh, and so... And you had to be prepared to defend it. So very often you defended records that you thought were terrible. But, but you... You bought just, them then, you invested. You invested, you're there. And that's a boy's thing. You know, that's, that is particularly a male thing. You know, here's, a, here's a, a kind of sexist generalization based on my years of working in music magazine offices with men and women, is where music's playing all the time is that women generally will go, I like this, what is it? Men will go, what is this? And then they'll tell you whether they like it or not. Right. <laughs> because men, men just couldn't bear to be caught liking the wrong thing. Whereas it's more of a female thing to say, I like what I like. You know, there's so much male self-image is bound up in that stuff, you know. Um, I don't know if that's still the case, but it certainly was back then. 
Oh, it's just when when I was growing up, uh, Smash Hits was such a huge part of uh, my more my sister's life because she was like up three years older than me. But could you just talk us a bit through like the beginning of Smash Hits? Well, I I joined it when it had been going a you know a few months because I was uh, I'd kind of I'd worked in record shops and I worked for a record company and I'd freelanced for the enemy and so forth. And I was just desperate for work because I, I'd pulled myself out of a job. And uh, I, I rang up somebody and said, do they know if there's any work around this? They said, well, Nick Logan started this thing called Smash Hits, and he could do with some help. So, and I knew Nick, so I rang Nick and, and said, can I help? And he said, pretty much, can you come in tomorrow? And I went in the following day, and I never left. You know, and I subsequently became editor, editorial director and all that. And... Um, the thing about Smash Hits, and this is, you know, so I joined it whenever, 79, I suppose, yeah. Um, and, you know, when I was editing it, 80, 81, 82, 3, so forth, and carried on all through, all through the 80s for other editors, it just grew and grew and grew. And so, <laughs> you know, every time you promoted it, every time they put a new gizmo on the cover of it or whatever, you would sell more copies. And so... Well, we, we... We were and talking you, we last week. Selling nearly a million at some point. Yeah, go on. Because we we were, we were talking last week, and we uh, we couldn't believe that it started as early as seventy nine. Because yeah. for me, it was such a very much like um, uh, like mid to uh, mid eighties onwards thing. It was just kind of as early as seventy nine. It feels like such an eighties publication. I suppose seventy nine is pretty much the eighties, but it felt like such a. Well, he was he uh, was he was still the end of um, well the first. I'm trying to think, the first actual cover might even have been 78. Um, do you know who was on the first cover of Smash Hits? <laughs> Plastic Bertrand. <laughs> now, you see, you don't even know who that is. Plastic Bertrand <laughs> is Belgium's only contribution to the worldwide, <laughs> the worldwide pop kind of firmament. Um, it had one hit called Saplan pour moi, and was on the cover of Smash Hits. And so if you look at those early Smash Hits covers, they have things like the Sex Pistols were on the cover of Smash Hits. You know, Generation X, Boomtown Rats, Blondie, those kind of things, yeah. So, I mean, it was very much... I remember my early days of Smash Hits was... Um, and dealing with lots of correspondence, you know, because people used to write to Smash Hits. Actually write to Smash Hits. And uh, and it was all it was all thirteen fourteen year olds feeling that they'd missed something called punk and had it gone away. You know what I mean? And they they had rather misguided enthusiasm for people like Sid Vicious, and uh, and they used to order mail order bum flaps through the. Um, do you remember bum flaps? Yeah, guys. Uh, no, <laughs> bum flaps. It sounds obscene now, doesn't it? it they were just, oh God, I don't know how you describe them. They were those strange kind of, um, like a semi-kilt that, uh, that, that you'd probably see. You might have seen Sid Vicious wearing one, I suppose. And, um, you know, this was the period where, where kids up and down the country, you'd go into every, every small town in Britain you'd drive through, there would be a war memorial. And sitting around that war memorial would be, 10 assorted kids, all of whom would have some kind of 
you know, adaptation of the punk uniform, you know, possibly something that they could take off in time to go home or to go to school or whatever. So uh, something in leopard skin or some badges or I don't know, whatever, some temporary earring or something. So there was always, there was always a big um, market in that stuff at the back of Smash Hits. But the big kind of boomer Smash Hits was what I suppose you'd call the new romantic time as you say you know 83 84 duran duran boy george and so forth and you know the arrival of of pop video and the highly evolved visual images and the importance of color photography and all that kind of thing and it was just it was absolutely huge you know because he wasn't just kind of clever and funny it was incredibly popular and the reason it was popular is it published the song lyrics. And so, and so you know, kids would get on the bus and, you know, get out the whatever, I don't know, girls on film or whatever, and sing along with the, um, with the records on the chart. You see, you, see, you, think, you think that's amusing now. It's really interesting that you think it's amusing now. And I, I think, think it's lovely. I think I it's so it is, lovely. It is. But it just shows how he had a, a, a whole habit of pop mm. that disappeared. Mm-hmm. But mm. it was an immense thing for a, you know, quite quite a long period of time. I don't believe anybody's doing it anymore. I, then again, the, the lyrics of whatever you want will, will be on the internet. And but can I just ask, how did that work? Did, did you get the lyrics from the actual uh, record labels or did you listen to them and work them out for yourselves? Well, yeah, first of all, you had to deal with the music publisher, not the record label, so, you know... They are the people who own the copyright of the of the words and music, so you'd have to pay them, um, and then you'd say to them, "Okay, we've agreed to pay you so and so. Can we have the words?" And they go, "Well, we don't have them," <laughs> <laughs> which is where I will learn the very important lesson early on in life that music publishing is the only exception to the rule that you have to work for a living. You know. <laughs> It's banking, effectively, is what they're doing. And so in a lot of cases, they didn't have the words. And so, and even if they did have the words, we would still check them. And so Bev Hillier, who, who worked there, as, she was about 19 at the time, um, she, her job was, as editorial assistant, to you know, sit there with, I don't know, the boy from New York City by the darts or whatever, I don't know, Kajigugu's, what was their hit called? Too Shy, I can't remember. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they'd sit there, you know, listening to how many, how many times the word baby was repeated in the fade out at the end and making sure that Smash Hits had the exact, you know, um, requisite number. And very often the lyrics uh, would, would finish with that immemorial phrase, repeat to fade, you know, which... It's a good name for a pop book, actually, yes. Repeat to Fate. We um, have many cases of misheard lyrics. Oh, the- God. Yeah, oh, God. I, well, did we go wrong? <laughs> did we go wrong? I, I'm sure we must have done. Nothing particularly sticks in, sticks in my mind, you know, but since then, of course, internet culture has come along and there's whole sites dedicated to, um, to misheard lyrics, you know. What's, uh, what's that it's Korean clear or revival thing that's called There's a Bathroom on the Right? Um, <laughs> I can't even think what the, what the tune is. Um, but no, generally speaking, we, we got it right, and if we got it wrong, we corrected it in the, 
in the next issue, you know. So it, um, it was, you know, the thing about Smash Hits, having done Smash Hits, you know, and, um, I, uh, you know, I have lots of my friends are kind of former editors of Smash Hits, Mark Ellen and Barry McElhenney and all sorts of people. And we always say that if you're standing up in any gathering anywhere in the world and you're stuck for something to say, you know, like you're addressing a conference or God knows what, just say, I once edited a magazine called Smash Hits. Did anybody once read it? And you can be guaranteed anywhere in the world, I mean this, the House of Lords or, you know, Australia or God knows what, a load of people go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> and, yeah. and interestingly, they all have really warm feelings about it. Really warm awesome. feelings. Awesome. So I, I go out and do, you know, signings of books and um and they are frankly mainly blokes <laughs> you know but there there are women in the in, in the crowd there in the audience or whatever but <laughs> you, you'll always get some women in the queue for signing just saying can you just say something about smash hits and in the in the signing of this thing these are you know women in the in their 40s and 50s <laughs> or whatever bringing their daughters or even their granddaughters along or whatever and it's you know it's it gives you a very warm feeling honestly it does you know you feel a great pride for the um you know for how close people felt to it but through but through the magazines that you worked on people pretty much grew up with you so you grew there's a bit of that that. just 17 q and, you know, it's kind of like you're not just for like people's uh, warm memories of their childhood, but educating them about music through their entire lives. Yeah, there's a bit of that. And that's, that's also, you know, it's very nice. But also one of the things about, about Smash Hits that uh, we often remark upon Mark and I when we look at old issues is how much we would write in Smash Hits about stuff that was quite old, even at that point. And so, you know, we would, there was no compunction about saying, okay, there's a, I don't know, there's a reissued Elvis Presley record in the charts. We're going to write a feature about who Elvis Presley was, you know, or what, you know, Tamla Motown was or whatever. So, and, and the readers were perfectly happy with that. They didn't say, oh, don't bother us with that granddad, you know. I think, I think that happens more and more now, though. I think lots of young people, because of things like Spotify, are probably exposed to... And I think... I, I, well, I think people who are interested in music are always, whatever era, even if they're 13 or 12 now, that anyone who's interested will always want to go backwards, right? Well, you, you, you hope so. But the thing I find with... Um, People nowadays, younger people, are, are exposed to a wider range of music, obviously, because it's available. They don't have to go and buy it. It's just there. What they don't have is any sense of chronology, mm. and uh, which maybe doesn't matter anymore. Maybe that only mattered 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know? Because for me, it was a succession of events that kind of came on each other's heels. You know, there's Elvis Presley. Then there was the Beatles. Then there was Bob Dylan. Then there was the Who. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then there was Roxy Music. And then there was the Sex Pistols and all those things. And I can, I can kind of write that timeline down because I lived through it. Whereas, you know, my, I don't think my children who are all grown up now, I don't think they'd be able to do the same thing because it's always all been there. Hmm. And so, you know, I have, 
I remember this years ago when my son was about 15, he appeared in this room up here where I'll keep all my records and where I work. And he just, <laughs> and I always avoid, I've always avoided having any conversation about music with my children. I just, I'm, I, I fundamentally disapprove of those people who go around saying, oh, I tried to turn my son on to the best thing. I'll give over. Let him like what he likes, but crying out loud. You know, you're only going to spoil it for him. And so on the rare occasions my son and I have had those kind of conversations, all very guarded. So he said, um, have you got any records by a bloke called Paul Simon, have you? <laughs> <laughs> said, yeah, 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 there's probably, there's probably about 40. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, 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 start where you like. Start where you like. There's good stuff on all of them, you know. Don't let me go. <laughs> Don't let me guide you, you know, because I, I personally, I hate that. You know, I took my 15-year-old to see whoever, to, to tell him what's what. Well, look, I was never cursed by that. My father would not have taken me to see any musical turn, you know, and I wouldn't have taken him. Then it's had he done. And I think it's a, a fundamentally bad idea that people do it nowadays. Um, but, the, you know, that's just the world has changed. I think you're right. And I think people who are interested will find it for themselves anyway, won't they? It's like and, I, and also the thing about music is I, I really do believe this. You don't go searching for music. Music finds you. All you can be with music is receptive. And so I could tell you, you've got to go and listen to so-and-so. Sure. Well, it probably won't work because as soon as somebody tells you you've got to do it, your back's up straight away isn't it <laughs> and um whereas if something kind of it steals upon you doesn't it music at its best it finds you at the point when you're emotionally receptive to it i've been listening yeah. to this year a bunch of miles davis records made in 1958 that i'd never really heard until this year all because of a concert i was involved in and i just think I'm listening to that stuff so more closely than I ever would if it had come upon me at an earlier stage, you know. And so all I can give it is my sympathetic attention. That's the best thing you can give it. And and, and my favourite stuff in, in music and in film is always the stuff that I've kind of, like, accidentally fallen into. It's not the stuff that was either all of my friends were listening to or that was popular at the time. It was just the stuff that... I felt like I, it was only made for me. And in actual fact, I couldn't convince anyone else to listen to it at all. Yeah. And yeah. It's, only, it's only years later, we, you know, as an Alice Cooper kid in 1994, you know, I didn't have any friends because <laughs> no one else was listening to that, you know. And I spent my whole life listening to Alice Cooper. And then it's like years later that you finally meet other people that have got other stuff in common with you. But that wasn't, that wasn't kind of like... Um, nobody like got me onto it you know but it's really funny for me to hear what you say there about alice cooper because i i come upon this increasingly i'm obviously bound to come upon it increasingly that your your kind of zenith of alice cooper was 1994 well that was yeah. 22 years or whatever after his first great purple patch in the mm. uk you know what i mean and so I increasingly, I, I, whenever I'm talking to younger people, I always think, you've listened to the right things, but in the wrong order. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's bad to be like that, isn't it? Whereas I had the kind of good fortune to be there in the right order. It doesn't last forever, obviously, because life doesn't. Nothing does, you know. Um, but uh, it, it's an intriguing thing for me, you know, how people find their way to things in, in all kinds of circuitous ways. And they listen to it in a different, in a different order. And that's, that's just the way it is. I think often the things you like most are often so close to the things you hate most. Like the, you, know, you can miss the things you might, you might hear something and hate it, but that's because it's so close to you loving it that there's almost like you're always walking a tightrope, aren't you? Of like, and then sometimes it's like, actually, that's my favorite thing. Yeah, possibly. It's almost to, to dislike it. Possibly, possibly. I find uh, I have a funny thing with Bob Dylan. That I always tell, and I've I've liked Bob Dylan since nineteen sixty-two or whatever it is, and um, and I first time I ever ever heard Bob Dylan was at a school folk club, lorded over by a load of six formers, you know, and I was like thirteen or whatever, and I went along being aware that Bob Dylan was a kind of groovy thing that was just coming along, but we knew so little about him, we thought he was called Bob Dylan. <laughs> because we'd never come across the word Dylan. And so that gives you an idea of how, you know, removed from normal media those things were. You didn't hear his name on the radio or, or the television or anything. Anyway, the point I was going to make about Bob Dylan is the Bob Dylan records I don't like are his popular ones because I always think, nah, he's, he's making it too easy for people here. You know what I mean? You know, desire, oh, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's, that's folk by numbers, you know. Blood on the tracks, not sure about that. He wrote that to get good reviews in the New York Times, you know. I prefer his kind of odd stuff where he's, he's gone off on one and nobody can quite work out what he's doing. And uh, very often you don't work out yourself until, until years later. But the great thing about Bob Dylan is he, ne he never seems to make records for the moment. He always seems to make records for eternity. Um, and you were one of the people responsible for launching Q magazine as well, and that that left us in July, I guess, perhaps as a result of the COVID or whatever, or maybe it was uh, your heading that way anyway. I don't know. But how does that feel to have something that has such a long life that's that you've launched and now has kind of had its well, era? Well, it's you know it happens with loads of magazines, and it, you know I don't doubt it'll happen with loads in the future. Um, you know, I suppose what I think, I mean, you know, there's this is obviously no comfort to anybody who was working on it at the time who lost their jobs, and, and that's an immensely serious thing. But, you know, when I look at these titles, had 20, 30 years, I think that's a pretty good run. <laughs> you, know, I mean, you know, this is supposed to be an ephemeral industry. Well, you know, however long it was, you know, 1986, Q, you know, up until... Uh, whenever it was earlier this year, that's quite that's quite a long period of time, and during that time, it's provided an awful lot of work and employment for an awful lot of people. Uh, I mean, the only thing I think about music papers, magazines nowadays, and people still introduce me as a rock journalist or or a rock critic, and I always have to say I haven't criticised any rock in absolutely bloody years. I haven't done it because I don't know where you'd do it anyway, and. Um, it is that um, is that when they're all gone, as they pretty much are now, the record business will miss them really badly. 
because what the music magazines and papers used to do is perform the invaluable service of making their products seem really important and really, and their acts really charismatic. And, uh, and nobody's doing that anymore. You know, no other media, you can't do that on the internet. And so, you know, I always say, who invented the clash? I'll tell you who invented the clash, Penny Smith, because she took all the photographs for the NME. And it's through her lens that the visual image of the clash was set. And that is what people are still listening to, is the visuals, oddly enough. You know, because your perfect image is set at a certain moment in time. And it never gets any better. And that's what people have got in their minds when they go and see you or hear you 30, 40 years later. So I think the, you know, the print media was massively important in setting, in, in, in defining the charisma of all these acts, whether it's the Beatles or the Clash later or whoever, Pet Shop Boys or anybody who came later. And now it's gone you know, it'd be interesting to see if people, you know, will will it happen for Ed Sheeran the way it's happened for Elton John? I don't know. I won't be there. And neither will I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us today, David. Um, David's new book, Overpaid, Over Six and Over There, is out in shops now and available as an audio book and you can get it everywhere that you can get books. Um, we've come to the end, David. That was incredible to talk to you. Uh, we've just got one last thing to do, and that's to uh, hand... I'm going to hand you over to Nathaniel, and we're going to play a game with you called Better or Worse. Nathaniel, explain the game. All right. OK, David, this is the game. It's called Better or Worse, and you have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before, based entirely on my own opinion. My opinion or yours? My opinion. Your opinion? I've got to guess. I have to say whether you think... That, OK, go on. I'll try this. Go on. OK, so beginning with Natalie Portman. Is Keanu Reeves better or worse than Natalie Portman? <laughs> Keanu Reeves is better than Natalie Portman. Correct. Is Russell Crowe better or worse than Keanu Reeves? Oh, yes. yeah. Well... I've got a soft spot for Russell myself. I've got to leave myself out of this, haven't I? Oh, Keanu Reeves is better than Russell Crowe. I'm guessing you are. Okay, go on. Kurt Russell, better or worse than Russell Crowe? Oh, is Kurt Russell... All right, go on, Kurt Russell. Okay, fine. Correct. Is Russell Brand better or worse than Kurt Russell? Worse. Worse, yeah. Yeah. Denzel Washington, better or worse than Russell Brand? Better. Yes, better. Correct. Is David Bowie better or worse than Denzel Washington? Better. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, you're going to say better, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is David Beckham better or worse than David Bowie? <laughs> worse. Worse. Is David Lynch better or worse than David Beckham? Better. Worse, I would say, but go on. Better. <laughs> All right. Tennant better or worse than David Lynch? <laughs> better. Worse. All right. Neil Tennant, better or worse than David Tennant? Better. Oh, yeah, Neil Tennant's better. Yeah, it's just simple. Better. Better. See, also, see, David oh, Tennant took his name from Neil Tennant, didn't he? He did, I think, yeah. I think he did. did he? He did. Well, um, well there you go. You've scored, uh, you've, you've scored eight, which means that you are... I scored ten. I scored ten, by the way. Uh, but you scored eight, which means that you're... 
You're not as good as Jen Brister, Thomas Coombs, Jason Manford, Joe Scaladini by 10, uh, Ken Cheng, Harry Hill, Luke Morley with 9, but you are as good as Susie Dent, Charles Eston, Magical Bone, Samantha Morton, Chris Dark, Stu Whiffen with 8, and you're better than James King, Henry Norman and Johnny Vegas with 7. So you smash that. Come to the end of another show, uh, David. Welcome to the clubhouse, and uh, that's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Nathaniel. And have a great week. It was a teenage wedding, and they all folks wished. Him-